The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? If you think about that thing about needs, right? If you create a society where people's psychological needs are not met, where they are profoundly lonely, 40% of American citizens agree with the statement, nobody knows me well where they are deeply financially insecure through no fault of their own. More than half of all Americans have less than $500 in savings. Think about how unbelievably stressful life is. If your car breaks down and that's it. You know, you've one medical bill and that's it. If you create a society where people have been taught that life is all about money and status, all sorts of factors that obviously I talk about in Lost Connections, If you deprive people of their basic psychological needs for meaning and community and belonging and a sense of security, that will produce all sorts of dysfunctional behaviours, right? Um, Or what seem to be dysfunctional behaviours, but are in fact ways of trying to cope. Cope. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Johan Hari. If you guys are longtime listeners of this podcast, then you know What a huge moment this is. Johan has written two New York Times bestselling books. One is called Chasing the Scream and one is called Lost Connections. When I picked up Lost Connections, it changed my life. It really solidified all of the things that I had been feeling about addiction and mental health, especially in America This episode is truly profound and it was such an honor to sit down with Johan. It almost feels like for me, because I'm such a big fan, this is like as if Elton John joined me on the podcast. Like that's how big this is. I have to say that Johan certainly did not disappoint. This episode is now in my top three, if not my number one favorite episodes of all time. He is such an incredible human being and he was so kind and I am just so grateful that he took the time out of his busy schedule. He's currently writing his third book to join me on the podcast. So with that, I'm going to keep it short and brief. And here is Johan Hari. I want to thank you because when I read Lost Connections, I read your books out of order. Um, I started with Lost Connections and what it did for me was it kind of, it brought so much, it it was like, it's like if you're swimming underwater and you can't see the picture, like, you know, everything's there, but you don't know how to put it all together. And your book really brought it all together. My husband and I own a drug and alcohol treatment center. And it started out of this feeling of community. We started having this Friday night meeting where it didn't matter if you were in a 12-step group or not. You could just come together and hang out and have fun. And it ended up growing to a group about 50 people who every single week would get together on this Friday night. And most people were young. And what we were seeing was people were staying sober, more so than they were in our traditional 12-step meetings that we were going to on a regular basis. And so 
what ended up transpiring was we go, oh, I, I think we've got something here. And my husband's like, I do too. I think the connection is somehow keeping us together. And so we started off as just a little sober living. And then we realized we wanted to turn ourselves into a non-12-step treatment center that focused heavily on trauma. But then we're like, there's a missing piece here because you can just focus on trauma all the time, but it doesn't leave you feeling very good. You need something that leaves you feeling like inspired. And all of a sudden, the keys to this thing started to present itself. And we started seeing success rates that were unlike any other treatment center out there. And then I came across your book and I was like, this is it. I knew about ACEs. I've heard about the Rat Park study, but the way that you put it together in that book really just brought it home for me. And I was like, we're on the right path, you know? And it made me feel hopeful after so many years of hearing that addiction is just this disease. And once you've got it, you're an addict for life. And, you know, now you've got this label and you're stuck in this, you know, cycle of of highs and lows and peaks and valleys that often feel so overwhelming. And by realizing that, that I'm not necessarily broken, but that the world and the environment that I grew up in and that I'm living in is broken, it allowed me to feel free. So thank you, first of all. Oh, that's so moving. I'm really happy to hear you say that. And as you were saying that, it makes me think about a line that the Bengali writer Krishnamurti said, it's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society, right? And you see that in our in our society, in our culture, in all sorts of ways. And as you were saying that, I was thinking a lot about something I learned in the research for the book, which was, I think it's something we all know intuitively, but it gives you a different way of thinking about these problems, which is everyone knows they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. Many things are better than they were in the past. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs for people. And it's not the only thing that's going on, but I think it's one of the key reasons why depression, anxiety, and addiction are going up. And I remember, you know, when I first made that argument, it's almost three years since Lost Connections came out. We're so taught to think that depression is purely biological, right? And a lot of the way addiction is talked about in the US is like that too. And when I was saying, you know, actually there's certainly a biological component, and as you know, I talk about that in the book, and it's, it's that's very real. But that's one part of a much bigger picture. But at the time, this was seen as very controversial, right? I, in a way that I found quite weird, but it was regarded as controversial for me to report the scientific evidence about these wider social causes. And then I've noticed during COVID, no one's telling me it's controversial anymore. Mm -hmm. There's been a, you know, enormous increase in depression and anxiety and overdose due to addiction under COVID. And everyone knows what has happened in the past year has not been that our brain suddenly went haywire. What's happened is that our society went haywire, right? Because there's a virus that's really endangering us. And as a result of that, that virus, we're having to take lots of steps, which are sensible steps, the right steps. I'm in favor of all sorts of restrictions to beat the virus. But those have a psychological knock-on effect, which 
amplify a lot of the trends that were already happening and were already fucking up our the way we felt about ourselves. So I, I think in a way that the, the insight that you found in the the, the center that you, that you work in, which was disconnection from the things you need is a big driver of this problem. And reconnecting is a huge part of the solution. It's why I say the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, although that's important to many people. The opposite of addiction is connection. Um, th- that, that was an insight we needed before. And it's an insight that's become actually kind of blatantly obvious to us in the past, whatever it's been. We're talking in November and it's since March. It's wild to me because what I've seen and and you talk about in the book, junk values. And I don't and I don't want to jump around. I I I wanna follow we can jump. It's okay. I'm thinking it. What's that <laughs> song from the to... 80s? The jump. How does it, what's, <laughs> yes. do you know, how does it go? Jump. Oh, yeah. uh, anyway, sorry. Yeah. I uh, get it. I, 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 but I want people to really understand the foundation and then the correlation to what's going on today. But I will say that I find it really interesting because in the book, you talk a lot about how junk values and a lot of social media impacts our mental health, right? And our overall happiness and well-being. And what I've witnessed and what we saw in this election was that a lot of my friends who I love and care about very much started spending a lot of time on social media. And what I saw was them starting to fall down a very dark path of of these conspiracies. And I think it's not being talked enough about. Unfortunately, I've lost a lot of friendships, not because I've shut them off, because they don't want to hear from me. There is no more reasoning. And of course, in the brain to someone who, you know, went to school for counseling and and owns a drug and alcohol treatment center I can I understand the prefrontal cortex and how the brain is being hijacked by so much stress and how we're living in our fight or flight mechanism and then all of a sudden you're getting bombarded with all of this news and this constant information and what I'm seeing is a real lack of discernment and of reasoning and further and further isolation from others we're now othering each other in a greater way than we were before or in a more outward way than than I've ever seen before and it and it's heartbreaking honestly i i've probably lost about 10 good girlfriends that i've known since high school because of this I think there's so many things in what you just said, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been in Vegas the last for, for a good more than a month now because I'm writing a book probably about Vegas, and, um, <laughs> and probably <clears throat> exactly. And um, you know, every I can't drive, so every Uber drive I, I go around by Uber or Lyft, and every driver I got, I would always say to them, I, I didn't say who who do you support in the election because it's too confrontational. Mm-hmm. I'd always say. Who do you think will win the election? Because then people almost invariably reveal. If they yes. go, it's going to be Trump by a landslide. <laughs> they go, oh, Jesus, it's going to be Trump or whatever, yeah. right? And it was really, dis- I mean, I kind of knew this from the studies and things, but it was very disturbing to see this kind of breakdown in, in our perception of reality. So I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. I had an extremely good looking um, young African-American driver. He must have been about 30, 35. And I said, oh, who do you think is going to win the election? He said, I don't know. And I, often that's what people would say when they kind of didn't want to say. But he said, but I'm worried about it. And I said, oh, I said, who did you, did you support someone last week? He said, I voted for Hillary Clinton. And I said, oh, okay. 
So, but I, but I, I realised I thought about it a lot. I did a lot of research and I couldn't vote for Joe Biden. And I said, why? And he said, absolutely, just completely plainly, the way you mm-hmm. might say to me, oh, this is how you get to the Hollywood Bowl from here. So, well, I couldn't really vote for Joe Biden when I found out that he was a cannibal and a pedophile. Mm-hmm. And, and he starts explaining basically the kind of QAnon stuff. In a completely uh, kind of calm way. And then he starts saying things that I, on the surface, and I want to stress are completely false and crazy. The theories are crazy. I got talking to him more. You know, he'd, he'd lost his job. He'd had a fairly good job. He'd lost his job. His cousin had been killed by the police. Mm. He's in this kind of mental turmoil. And I thought a lot, a woman I met exactly four years before. So I was in Cleveland in the run-up to the 2016 election with an amazing guy from here in LA who you should have on your show, Dave Fleischer. He runs outreach for the LA LGBT Center. He's a wonderful person. And they do this kind of work that's about getting out the vote. It's nonpartisan. Yeah. Um, getting out the vote work. And we were on this street in Cleveland. It was the moment I knew Trump was going to win. We were on this street in Cleveland and like, this is devastated street. A third of the houses had been demolished. A third were abandoned. A third still had people living in them, often behind barbed wire. We knock on this door and there's a woman who I would have guessed from looking at her was 60. We got chatting Turned out she was the same age as me. I was 37 at the time. Mm. She obviously had a really tough life. She was very, very intelligent, very thoughtful. I was talking to her. She was very angry. There was no way she was going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And although she wasn't illusioned about Donald Trump, and, and we're talking, and i never forget this, she made this mistake. She was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents, right? And how when they left school when they were 16, they got jobs in the local factory. They had pretty good lives. And she meant to say, when I was young, what she actually said is, when I was alive. Mm. And she didn't notice she'd said it. I mean, I looked at Dave and he looked at me, but she didn't notice she'd said it. And whenever I hear people ranting and raving about Trump voters, and you know my politics, I, I'm delighted that Donald Trump has been defeated, although I'm not a great fan of Biden. When I have people ranting and raving about and just saying, oh, it's just racism or it's just, they're just evil or they're just disgusted. Mm-mm. I just want to say, no, you, it's way too simplistic a way of thinking about what's happening. If you think about that thing about needs, right? If you create a society where people's psychological needs are not met, where they are profoundly lonely, 40% of American citizens agree with the statement, nobody knows me well where they are deeply financially insecure through no fault of their own. More than half of all Americans have less than $500 in savings. Think about how unbelievably stressful life is. If your one, your car breaks down and that's it. You know, you have one medical bill and that's it. If you create a society where people have been taught that life is all about money and status, um, all sorts of factors that I, obviously I talk about in Lost Connections, if you deprive people of their basic psychological needs for meaning and community and belonging and a sense of security, that will produce all sorts of dysfunctional behaviours, right? Um, or what seem to be dysfunctional behaviours, but are in fact ways of trying to cope. cope. Exactly. Well, think about an obvious statistic, yes. right? When a factory shuts down in a town, in the two years that follows, the overdose rate doubles, right? Again, no one I explain that to finds it difficult to understand why, right? We've created conditions that for very large numbers of people don't meet their psychological needs, in many cases don't meet their physical needs, right? Um, I mean, in terms of healthcare and just nutrition and things like that. And in that situation, people will try to cope in ways 
that to the outside will appear dysfunctional and indeed will be dysfunctional in some ways. So if you think about conspiracy theories, which you mentioned, right? Conspiracy theories, these conspiracy theories, for example, QAnon are completely false and harmful. But they're a way of trying to cope in a sea of chaos and anxiety, right? They're a way of trying to locate yourself in a battle between good and evil where you're on the side of good. For many people, they're actually a way of processing trauma. I noticed a lot because QAnon is a a false conspiracy theory about rescuing children from pedophiles. I've noticed lots of the people I've spoken to who believe in this have themselves been sexually abused. Which is why, because everyone I talk very openly about my history. And so people are like, aren't you angry about all of the children? You were one of them. And I'm like, yes, but none of this is helping. What would help save the children are all the things I feel like I'm fighting for. Healthcare, access to addiction treatment, ending, you know, the for-profit prison industry, having a living wage, helping in our schools, our aftercare programs, maternity leave, paternity leave, helping people feel like they're not drowning all the time, reducing generational trauma. I mean, those are the things that we know statistically drive down not just child abuse, not just child sexual abuse, but gen- generational trauma, physical violence in the households, addiction, mental health crises, all of those things, abortion, all of those things go down when we do all of the things that that I'm advocating for. And so it, it's heartbreaking. It's hard to see my friends, you know, that are unfortunately no longer speaking to me because of this. Well, I think you're absolutely right that what we need to do is deal with the underlying problem. Mm-hmm. What doesn't work, and there's loads of research about this, is just to um, aggressively challenge the kind of surface yeah. idea. So this, this, this. Um, I mean, the QAnon driver that I had, if I just go to him, that's crazy. You're claiming to me that Joe Biden eats human flesh. Think about what you're saying. It's ridiculous, right? That absolutely doesn't work because there's an, although it is not true, clearly not true that Joe Biden eats human flesh, there is an emotional truth about that guy's distress, mm-hmm. about the degree to which he's been betrayed by elites, and he really has been he betrayed has by been. elites. Absolutely. You know, um, now not in the form of Joe Biden eating children. <laughs> distress yeah. again, just for the to be unambiguous about that. Yeah. But th- you, you think about um, what's happening here, and this is true of addiction, depression, anxiety, conspiracy theories, the rise of extreme politics. Of course, there's different things going on, and there's all sorts of complexities there's and tons not, of nuance. Of course, but. To me, the core of it is, this is a society... So you mentioned junk values. I'll just explain to people what that is because I think it helps to mm-hmm. get to some of the... Uh, one aspect of many that are kind of the kind of existential crisis that's happening here, right? So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that's basically what he said, right? But nobody had scientifically investigated this until an amazing man I got to know named Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And and Professor Kasser did loads of really important research on this, but he discovered lots of things. I'll give you an example of two. He discovered the more you think life is about money and how you look to other people, the values that you get from advertising and Instagram and all the stuff like that, the more likely you are to be depressed and anxious by a really significant amount. Your, these values go up, your belief in money and status, that that's what life is about, and your anxiety and depression go up. And he showed that as a society, as a culture, 
we've become much more driven by these values, right? I'm 41 years old and they've been going up all throughout my lifetime. And, and the reason I call them junk values is it's a bit like everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? Um, I literally ate at McDonald's this morning, so I'm not, there's no gloating in that. You can tell from my chins. Um, and, and we all know that junk food appeals to the part of us that needs nutrition, but actually fucks us up, gives us sugar highs and sugar lows, all that stuff, right? In a similar way, I think the, this, this belief that life is about money and showing off are like junk values, right? You need a system of values to guide you through life, right? All human beings need that. And what junk values do is they appeal to the part of us that, that seeks meaning and, and, and purpose, but they divert us onto bullshit, right? Onto worrying about, oh, how many likes did I get on my Instagram post? How, how, you know, Now, people need a baseline of financial security. Money is important mm-hmm. up to the point in which you get the baseline of financial security. And a lot of people are deprived of that, more than half of people yeah. in this country. And I think the number is pretty high too. It's like some, 100 to $150,000 a year is kind of, is what I've read, is, is kind of like that's like anything after that, it doesn't really matter. But oh, I think up it's lower than that. that. Yeah, it's about eighty thousand dollars. Yes. Well, Beyond in California, that, more money Johan. doesn't. Matter. <laughs> okay. We're in LA. So. God damn it! But, but yeah, there's a, there's yeah, so there's a, a threshold. Yeah, it's a threshold beyond which more money yes. does not equal more happiness, and actually, yes. it can be, it becomes inverse quite quickly. Yeah. Um, or inverse is not quite right putting it, but the, yeah, there's threshold. And I think one of the things that's happened is that our culture has just been poisoned by these junk values. We have been taught to seek happiness in all the wrong places, right? Our values have been hollowed out. You know, there's a a little experiment I think about all the time that just kind of illustrates this, right? It was done in the the late 70s, not by Professor Kasser, by a different group of um, social scientists. It's a really simple experiment. They get a load of kids, I think they're five, and uh, they're playing in a sandpit and they split them into two groups. And the first group is shown two advertisements for whatever the equivalent of the Teletubbies was in 1979, right? Whatever it was, I forget what it is. And the second group of kids has shown no advertisements. And then the kids are told, okay, kids, you're all told, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a nice boy who hasn't got the toy that was in the advertisement, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy, right? And the kids who've seen the advertisement overwhelmingly choose to play with the nasty boy who's got the toy. And the kids who've not seen the advertisement overwhelmingly choose to play with the nice boy who doesn't have the toy. So it shows advertising, and that's just one example, primes us to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of connection connection. and fun, right? And we're all, from the moment we're born, as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. More 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own last name, right? Now, no disrespect to the McDonald's M. It's given me some of my happiest moments. <laughs> Those fries are good. Exactly, God damn <laughs> yes. it. The, the McRib is coming back. Don't get me wrong. There's reasons to be happy. But, you know, that's not ultimately... Yes. The, the, so if you... And that's one example. Think about another one. Loneliness, right? Mm. You've got a profoundly low... There's a study that asked Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none, right? What is life like if you have nobody to turn to when things go wrong, right? If you have no true friends? When you create situations of anxiety like that, you've been trained to look for happiness in bullshit. 
that you that will not make you happy. In fact, it will likely make you miserable. You've been deprived. We are a social species, right? Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. We've dismantled our tribes. Think about those two things. If you do that, you create an environment in which A, individuals will be very depressed and anxious a lot of the mm. time. B, they'll find anesthetics, whether it's, you know, Oxycontin or meth, much more appealing. Social media. Exactly. Working out, exactly. avoiding, you know, our struggles by throwing ourselves into work, whatever it might be. Now, I'm in the I'm in the camp that everyone's addicted to something. I know that you say everyone knows someone who's addicted to something. I think everybody's addicted to something, whether it's our cell phones, you know, shopping, sex, drugs, alcohol, food. We're all trying to survive in this fucked up world. I you mentioned the the ACEs study in your in your book. And I talk about the adverse childhood experience study often because I scored a nine out of 10. So good for me. (laughs) I'm just, just playing. Everyone knows that I've talked about aces on here. I highly suggest you go and get your, your score. It's easy to do. You can go to aces too high. It's really cool. And make sure you take the resilience test too. And I remember when I first did the aces study, and I did the nine out of 10. I'm like, oh, okay. So all of this makes sense now. I know why I'm depressed. I know why I'm anxious. I know why I'm, I'm addicted to heroin at 19 years old. I, everything makes sense now, right? I scored a nine out of 10 and, and here it is. And then, you know, I'm a couple more years into sobriety and I've been working with clients for a m- number of years now, and I've been listening to their stories and, and I've gained more perspective in the world. And I've, have the ability now to kind of zoom out and see other people's pain and the pain of the world, the collective world, what what's going on in South America, what's happening in North Korea, all of this, this collective pain. And it just, you know, it makes, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate says, you know, it's not why all of the, the addiction, it's why all the pain. And, you know, when, when I look at the collective pain and kind of just like the collective psyche of the world and where we're at right now, it makes sense to me why so many people need Xanax to get through a day. It makes sense to me why we're glued to our phones. It makes sense to me. It's the opposite of what we should be doing, but it makes sense to me that we're just all trying to cope to try to survive. I think that's true. And I think it's important to stress to people it doesn't have to be this way, right? It doesn't. And, and the, you know, I remember there was um, one person who really helped me to frame this differently. And it's a wonderful South African psychiatrist named Dr. Derek Summerfield, who, who I went to interview. He was in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. He was studying something else. It was just happened by coincidence he was there. And the local Cambodian doctors had never heard of antidepressants. So they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he was like, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like St. John's wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So, so they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields after a few months. It's quite common in Cambodia that they give people artificial legs and or limbs. And um, the guy, I'm guessing it, it was pretty traumatic to work in the field where he got blown up. And apparently it's 
super painful to work underwater when you got an artificial leg. The guy started to cry all day. He couldn't get out of bed. He just developed what we would think of as classic depression. And the Cambodian doctor said to Derek, well, this is when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, right? It had causes in his life. That if you, you only had to speak to the guy for five minutes to see what well, made perfect sense why he was upset. One of the doctors figured if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Mm. Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's solely a biological fault, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively, based on this individual anecdote, is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to say for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not broken, you're not a machine with malfunctioning parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and support to get mm. those deeper needs met. And there's all sorts of ways, both individually and collectively, we can get these deeper needs met. We don't have to live like that. Many things are better now than in the past, right? I'm gay. When I was, you know, it's not so long. 30 years ago. I mean, it would have been harder to live than But whenever today. I feel pessimistic about this, whenever I think, oh, fuck, you know, we're talking about a lot of things that have gone wrong in our society. Whenever I get pessimistic, I think about a friend of mine named Andrew Sullivan, who a lot of your um, listeners will, will know. He's a great journalist. And at the height of the AIDS crisis in 1993, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. Mm. And um, he just watched his best friend Patrick die of AIDS. This is the height of the crisis. There's no, as far as they know, there's no hope in sight, right? That there were no protease inhibitors or anything. And Andrew decided he was going to do one last thing before he died. So he quit his job. He was the editor of a magazine called The New Republic. And he went to a little place in Cape Cod called Provincetown. And he decided, okay, I'm going to write a book about a crazy utopian idea, right? Obviously, I'm never going to live to see this idea put into practice. No one alive today will live to see it. But maybe somewhere down the line, someone will find this book and think this is a good idea. The idea that Andrew wrote the first book to ever advocate for was gay marriage. And when I get pessimistic, I try to imagine going back in time to Andrew in Provincetown in 1993 and saying, okay, Andrew, you're not going to believe me, but 26 years from now, A, you'll be alive. That would have blown his mind. B, you'll be married to a man. C, I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book you're writing when it makes it mandatory for every state in the union to introduce gay marriage. And the next day, you're invited to have dinner with the president in a White House lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. And by the way, that president, he's going to be black. Right? <laughs> yeah. It would be like me saying to you, so Alexis, I know you're feeling down yeah. right now, but 26 years from now, a trans president is going to invite us to smoke crack with her in the Oval Office, right? But it fucking happened, it right? Happened. It happened. Yeah. Incredible things happen. And thank you for the reminder because, wow, lately I have just... Ooh, gone down. And I'm just like, this is wild with what's happening in our politics. It just, it so easily tanks all of the hope that you have for the future. 
which makes me think about just my journey with mental health. And I, you know, I've tried every, every drug that you can, <laughs> I mean, you, you go have to you the psychiatrist <laughs> and they're like, well, so what have you tried? It's like, what, ha- what haven't I tried? Um, I've tried recreational and prescribed. Um, no, but I've, I've tried it all. And my story is similar to yours in that I tried a drug. It worked for a while. Then I had to up the dose and I was at the max dose and that stopped working. And then I had to try another drug. Oh, but the side effects were so bad. I ended up in the hospital. Oh, okay. So we're switching drugs. I ended up two years ago doing transcranial magnetic stimulation thinking it has to be something in my brain. It has to be serotonin. And this was before I read your book when I realized, you know, we're not all broken. It's not like millions upon millions of people just stop making enough serotonin and dopamine and GABA. You know, it's 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 my environment. And then what I realized was my grandpa committed suicide. Well, first, my entire business is burned down, right? All of the rehabs burned down. Thankfully, everyone got out alive, but it was traumatizing. Then I got slapped with like a huge tax bill that I wasn't expecting. So we went into major financial debt crisis mode, had to lay off employees. I felt so bad because our employees are our family. So feeling like we're losing people. Then my grandpa committed suicide. And whoa, I went into such a dark place. And I went back to the psychiatrist and I'm like, I've tried it all. What should we do? And he goes, well, we should maybe zap your brain for, you know, 36 weeks and see see what happens at the end of it. And yes, it gave me some relief, but did it? Or was it the fact that I went back into therapy and that I started seeing a holistic nutritionist. I started seeing a chiropractor every week and taking care of myself. I don't know. All of these things are kind of anecdotal when you're doing all of the things you can to pull yourself out of a suicidal depression. But how many people are in the same position right now going, the world is ending. This is too much for me. I'm working a shitty job. I hate my life. I have so many kids. I feel like I'm being crushed under the weight of all of this. And now my Prozac isn't working. I think, and you're, I think it's really important what you just said. So I think the, the framework that we should understand these problems in is what, the fancy term for it is the biopsychosocial model. It's really mm-hmm. straightforward. There's three kinds of cause of these problems and they're all real and they all play out to some degree or, or they play out in most cases to some degree, all three of them. There are biological causes your genes can make you a bit more sensitive to these problems, just like some people find it easy to put on weight and some people find it hard to put on weight. Um, but they don't write your destiny. There are psychological causes, how you feel about yourself, you mentioned trauma, many things like that. And there are social causes, things like loneliness, financial insecurity. So bio, psycho, social, right? They're all real, they all play out. What we've done though, what's been going on for too long, is people with these problems have been offered an exclusively biological story in many cases. When I was a teenager, I went to my doctor. I'd experienced some very extreme things as a child, extreme forms of abuse. And my doctor said, didn't ask me any questions about why I might be depressed. Just said, oh, we know what's wrong with you. You've got, um, your brain's just lacking serotonin. This just happens to some people. It's a malfunction. Here's these drugs. And those drugs gave me some relief for a short period. I'm not dissing the drugs. What I'm dissing is the story that she told, right? And again, not because she's a bad person. My doctor was a very nice person. I believe she was helping me. But what that does 
when you tell people, now it's important to stress, part of the story is biological. That is real. There are some people who deny that, they're wrong, right? Absolutely, the biological component should be discussed, investigated, and where possible, should be a component of treatment. But if you focus only on the biology, what you end up doing, and this isn't anyone's intention, is you end up saying to people, your pain doesn't mean anything. It's like a glitch in a computer program. It's a malfunction. And the single most important thing I learned that helped me in the research for Lost Connections, my book, was your pain makes sense. You feel this way for reasons. Reasons that are entirely understandable. The vast majority of people would feel like shit if they'd been through that. And once you realize it makes sense, that opens up a different set of solutions. So that can sound quite fancy and abstract. Let me give you a very concrete example, one of the heroes of the book, right? Um, Sam Everington is a doctor in East London, right? And you should have him on your podcast. Love Sam. So Sam is a doctor in East London, a poor part of East London where I lived for a long time, though sadly he was never my doctor. And Sam was looking at his patients and he's just having loads of people who are depressed and anxious. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they give some relief to some people. He prescribes them. But he could see a few things. Firstly, that a lot of the people he was giving the antidepressants to, chemical antidepressants to, were staying depressed. It was just taking the edge off a little bit. And secondly, that they were depressed for perfectly good reasons. Like, for example, they were really lonely. So one day, Sam decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to his offices called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's offices that was just like wasteland, basically. And Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and meet a couple of times a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how shit you feel, I mean, you could do that if you want, but to find something meaningful that you could do together. So the group met, and the first time they met, Lisa literally vomited with anxiety because it was just so overwhelming. She'd been shut away for so long. But the group started talking. They're like, what could we do together? And these were inner city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening. But someone said, yeah, we could turn this wasteland into a garden, right? So they started to watch clips on the internet. They started to get books out of the library. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world, really powerful antidepressant. But even more than that, they started to form a group. They started to form a tribe. It's exactly what you were describing earlier. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would go looking and be like, hey, are you okay? And the way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. It was a study in Norway, of a, very, a small study in Norway of a very similar program found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. And I think for an obvious reason, right, it was dealing with one of the core reasons why they felt so shit in the first place, their disconnection from the natural world and their disconnection from other people. The book is called Lost Connections because we've lost <laughs> so many basic connections, right? Are you looking for the best way to spend dry January? Look no further than Kin. Kin Euphorics is the first non-alcoholic drink for grown-ups who care about the little things like brain function, hormone harmony, great sex, and de-stressing after an insane day. Kin Euphorics are stacked with the good stuff and none of the bad. Think adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms that help curb stress in the moment and over time, as well as nootropics that support cognitive function, i.e 
i.e. clarity, memory, and creativity. Kin Euphorics has designed three mood-defining drinks for every occasion. It's like the Spotify, but for beverages. They've got the high road, which hosts an herbaceous flavor and a feeling of a lifted mind and relaxed body. Great for a social hour. I highly recommend. I reach for high road after a long day and add a splash of club soda or tonic with a squeeze of lime. It's perfect for when I'm looking for a way to kick back, but without the compromise. You might've seen me on my Instagram making one of these drinks. I'm a huge fan. This is the perfect mocktail for any holiday gathering. Kin Spritz is a sparkling Aperol-like brain boost without the crash or hangover. I crack open a spritz around 4 p.m. to beat my afternoon slump and shift from work into play mode. Evan is a huge fan of the spritz. He takes one to work and drinks it before he heads home. He's a big fan of it and loves the taste. And then we have the Dream Light. This booze-free nightcap tastes like an Amaro and melts away my stress. Not to mention... I sleep like a baby and wake up feeling awesome. We've worked out a special deal for the Recovering From Reality podcast listeners. Receive up to 15% off plus free shipping on your order. Go to kinuforks.com forward slash reality or use the code reality at checkout to claim this deal. That's kin, K-I-N, euphorics, E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S dot com forward slash reality. Hey guys, it's Gabby from What's Gabby Cooking. And seeing as how we've all got a little extra time on our hands at home, um, hello, social distancing, let's get down to business in the kitchen. Come hang every Monday while we talk about all things food and I answer your burning questions about cooking, ingredients, swaps, tips and tricks, etc. I'm also gonna be highlighting super rad small businesses and we're gonna be learning about other incredible makers in the food world and who even knows what else. Anything's fair game in 2020, right? What's Gabby cooking in the wild? Here we come. You know what I find so funny is that um, as humans, we have this instinct when something's wrong to do the polar opposite. And uh, (laughs) to do the, you know, it's like we see this thing and then there's no middle ground, right? And I I often laugh at like, you know, if if self-help worked, Oprah would have cured us all in the 90s, for sure. Um, but if, if... Don't diss Oprah. I've, <laughs> been, to Oprah. Oprah's ha- I've, I've been to Oprah's house. I'm. Please tell me about that at dinner. Please <laughs> join me for dinner and then tell me about that because I will just fangirl the whole time. But um, I think it's interesting. And, and we live in a society that's so focused right now on self-help, self-healing, self-actualization, self-esteem. Um, I think self-help must be the number one, you know, hashtag on every social media platform. And I find it really funny. You went on this podcast. I won't say who it was. His name rhymes with whoa, <laughs> Logan. And you're trying to explain the importance of connection, why why caring about others and, and community would actually make you happier than just working out at the gym by yourself. And you're trying over and over and over and over to like drill this point home and it was not clicking, you know, and I'm listening. Well, I want to say I love Joe. And I, Joe is very... <laughs> no, but Joe yes. is actually... Joe, one of the things I really like about him is that he's a genuinely open-minded person. Yes. And the answers, the, the pushback Joe was giving is a pushback that a lot of people in this culture give. Yes. And one of the things I really like about... I mean, there's lots of things I like about him. But one is that he... He, he talks to people he doesn't necessarily agree with and thinks mm-hmm. through his responses. 
And I actually thought it was a really productive conversation. And um, I found it. It was productive because I felt like I was listening to, you know, someone else's perspective that I, you know, him not really getting your point in that moment. I was like, oh, okay, so this makes sense. A lot of people are feeling this way. I think that's true. And I also think that's on me. And I, I think, how would I put it? With Joe, I think a lot in relation to that conversation, to something that we talked about that I think Joe essentially agrees with, it's uh, some research that was done by a group of scientists, including a woman named Brett, brilliant scientist named Brett Ford, who was at Berkeley when I interviewed her. She's now in, I think, in Toronto. And she did this, it was part of, there were lots of people who did it, this study that um, was looking at a really basic thing, right? Let's imagine any of your listeners decided they were going to spend two hours a day consciously trying to make themselves happier. Would it work? Would you actually become happier? And they did this study in four countries, here in the United States, in Russia, in Taiwan, and in Japan. What they found at first seems really weird. In the US, if you try to make yourself happier consciously, you do not become happier. In the other three countries, if you deliberately try to make yourself happier, it works. You do become happier. And at first they're like, well, how can that be? What's going on here? So they look more. What they discovered is in the United States, when we try to make ourselves happier, generally you do something for yourself. You buy something, you work harder to get a promotion, you treat yourself, whatever that is, right? In the other countries, generally, of course, there are exceptions on both sides, generally, you do something for someone else your friends, your family, your community. So we have an instinctively individualistic idea of what it means to be happy. And they have an instinctively collective idea of what it means to be happy. And it turns out our story of happiness just doesn't work, right? We evolved on the savannas of Africa in tribes. If you were separated from your tribe, you were upset and anxious for a really fucking good reason. You were about to die, right? You were in terrible danger. You were unprotected from the elements, from animals that might attack you, if you got sick, you, you know, a species of individualists would have died out on the savannas of Africa, right? We all think we're John Wayne on the, on the, you know, on going across the yeah. horizon. Even cowboys weren't individualists, right? They absolutely were not. They lived in tight groups. Uh, an individualistic cowboy would have died, right? So, so we've got this, we've become trapped in a story about how to make ourselves happy that is wrong in all sorts of ways. You will not find happiness through pursuing your own ego, right? I don't want to mention the name of the outgoing president, but, you know, I've rarely seen a more unhappy man, deeply, deeply unhappy in his bones. I think even a lot of his supporters would admit that he's a terribly unhappy person. I know they do because I've asked them. And it's not a coincidence that he's so unhappy and so absolutely fixated on his own ego to the point where he, you know, well, that's not going to Trump, but the, 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 oh, I said his name, damn it. We've got to find ways beyond this individualism. And there are lots of ways to do it. And when you see it happen, it, it's so beautiful, right? Moments of love and connection mm. are what life is all about. Yeah. And they're all around us, right? And the opportunity for kindness and goodness and decency are everywhere. Um, instead, we've been poisoned into thinking that life is... A, and it's funny because at some level we know this, right? Everyone listening to your show knows. None of, them, none of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the shoes you bought and all the likes you got on Instagram, right? You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. 
but we, we're in this immense machinery that teaches us to value bullshit instead. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. One of the greatest moments for me, and I think for my entire family's healing, for the for the healing of my sister and I, for overall just making me feel a little bit better in quarantine, because as I said to you, when this hit, we locked it down. So I've had very little human connection and I'm <laughs> feeling, you know, I'm feeling the effects of, of that very much. So, but my sister had a baby and oh. she gave birth out of hospital in a birth center. And I'm getting emotional just talking about it right now because I was able to be there for every contraction, for every push, for and my mom was too. And those moments, those first 10 minutes of him being here and us just like the oxytocin in the room, the warmth. I mean, even just sitting here having this conversation, you can feel the difference. The last nine months, all of my conversations with my guests have been over Skype, but there is something to be said about the exchange of energy, of of passion, of love, of conversation, of you know, sharing food, all of those things, they really do help. And what we're seeing and what I love about your work is that you're giving solution, right? Like, I think a lot of my listeners, and myself included, have often felt hopeless on our journeys towards healing. And what I know to be true is that connection really does matter. and. I don't know. I think it's just interesting how we get so distracted in this in in our lives. You know, I often hear my girlfriend say to me, "Oh, well, you know, so and so's got soccer practice, and then this, 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 and then this." And and I get that as a busy mom of two kids. But one of the good things that I've walked away from during quarantine and my family is is slowing down. Is relishing in that new baby and that newborn, cooking meals together, eating together, you know, complimenting each other. All of these things have been so amazing to experience and so therapeutic and really healing for my family. Because before that, every woman went into the hospital and we had our babies and then we came home a couple of days later and then people would pop in and out, but they'd go back to, like I said, their busy lives. Oh, well, I've got to go to work and a nine to five. And now we're kind of living in this very bizarre, but at the same time, kind of ideal situation where we're having to reevaluate. Is the nine to five sustainable? Are we really able to sustain and feel happy working 40, 50, 60 hours a week? Is missing my kids recital because I can't get time off working for me is commuting for two hours a day something that I really want to continue doing just to live in this house. It's really making us reevaluate, like you said, our values. Well, I think it's this is an opportunity to radically reappraise the way we were living and to see some of the things that were going wrong and some of the things that were right. I think that's really important for us to reflect on and and think about and absolutely we don't have to live in ways that you know are like wage slavery right mm-hmm. um and i can talk about the ways we can change how we work that reduce depression and anxiety if you want but as you were saying that i was thinking a lot about you know we're trained in this culture to see our pain 
That's an individual problem located in the individual that needs to be fixed in the individual, right? Now, sometimes that's told in a very reductive way, like my doctor said to me, all this pain and distress you've got is because you've got a broken brain, right? Other times it's told in a reductive way, like some crude forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, although there's some value in CBT, you know, oh, this is just your bad thought patterns and you need to change your thought mm-hmm. patterns as if, if you don't know how you're going to fucking pay the rent and you don't know how you're going to look it's after your kids. It's just a matter of thinking. Just, exactly. Just think differently. Just You'll be fine, yeah. right? It's, it's an insult to people, yes. actually. Now, I want to stress there's a lot of good CBT practitioners who are I, more sophisticated I, than that. I'm a big fan, yeah, yeah, course, depending but, on the diagnosis. Sure, sure. Yeah. Exactly. There's some value in it, but it's one part of a bigger yes. set of solutions. But the thing that most needs to be explained to people is that you are powerful when you stand with others. I think a lot about, I'll give you two examples. I'm thinking a lot. Uh, my grandmother, I loved both my grandmothers very much. Um, one of my grandmothers raised me because my, my mother was ill when I was a kid and my dad was in a, a different country. And they would both have been 100 next year. And when my grandmothers were the age I am now, when they were 41, they were not allowed to have bank accounts in their own name because they were women. Their husbands could legally rape them. Their husbands could, in, in effect, legally beat them because the police never investigated domestic violence. They couldn't get jobs without the permission of their husbands, right? They were, my grandmothers were incredibly hardworking and clever people, and they were denied all of their ambitions. My Swiss grandmother wanted to be a painter. She was incredibly good at drawing and painting. She had to get married to this man who treated her like shit, live on this fucking mountain in the middle of nowhere, um, and having a load of kids she didn't really want to have, didn't really like. Uh, By the end of her life, she found it too painful to draw and paint because it just made her think about the life she could have had. My Scottish grandmother, uh, who who, who raised me, um, again, had an unbelievably hard life. She grew up in incredible poverty, you know, she had to leave school when she was 13. Um, she cleaned toilets all her life. That was her job, which is no disrespect in, or dishonor in that. She wanted to work with homeless people, but women weren't allowed to do that. That was for men, right? Again, although my, she was a happier person than my Swiss grandmother, she had um, a really hard life where she was denied the ability to cultivate her talents. And I think a lot about, so my niece is called Erin, my sister's daughter. And she's 14 now. And she never met my Swiss grandmother. But I think about, you know, so my niece loves to draw and paint like her, the great-grandmother she never knew. And I think about the transformation in the way women are treated. When my Swiss grandmother drew and painted, she was told, stop doing that, get married, have children. Right? That's your life. That's what you get, right? My niece draws and we say, Fucking amazing! You're going to go to art school. You're going to be an artist. We, you know, we, we, I, I'm, I think I'm boring. I just keep sending her biographies of female artists and all these things, right? And, and my niece takes that for granted. That of course she, why wouldn't she be an artist, right? Now that didn't happen by accident. That transformation that happened because huge numbers. By the way, my Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote when she was the age I am now, right? That change happened not by magic. But because huge numbers of women and some sympathetic men said, fuck this, we're not taking it anymore, right? And they fought and they rebelled and they were beaten and treated like shit and mocked and ridiculed and abused. 
and they change the world. And as a result, my niece's life is unrecognizable from just two, three generations back, right? It's really important that people understand you are powerful, right? We are not peasants begging the king for favors, right? We are citizens of democracies and they're as democratic as we make them. And, And when we are confronted with an injustice, and there are some injustices we are confronted that are as great as the way women were treated in my grandmother's generation, the response is to be inspired by what those women did and the women after them, which is to say, no, no more, right? We're not going to take it anymore and demand something better. And, and it, you know, if we don't, you know, Rebecca Solnit, um, brilliant Californian writer, said, hope isn't a lottery ticket. You sit clutching on your sofa, hoping your number comes up. Hope is an axe you use to break down the door in an emergency, right? Mm. Hope is not a passive thing. Hope is an active thing. We gain hope through acting. And when we, and I think about this a lot in relation to the group of people I got to know when I was writing Lost Connections, um, who I think about every day. I think they think I'm slightly mad because I just cry whenever I see them. But I'll just tell you their story if that's okay. Um, I'll just tell So in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, uh, a woman named Nuria Cengiz, who's a Turkish-German woman, climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. So Nuria lived on this big housing project, like any housing project in the US, very anonymous, no one really knew each other. And the sign, she lived on the ground floor, and the sign in her window said, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. People walked past Nuria's apartment and they saw this, they didn't know her. Um, a lot of people kind of thought, what should we do? Actually, a lot of people were being evicted because rents were going up across the city and particularly in this neighborhood, Cotty. And so they started to knock on Nuria's door. They said, do you need any help? Nuria said, fuck you, I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself and shut the door. And this, this housing project was in a kind of unusual area. It was gentrifying really fast. And there were basically three groups of people. It, it had always been a really poor neighborhood. And there were three groups of people who lived there. There were recent Muslim immigrants, like this woman, Nuria. There were gay men and there were punk squatters. And as you can imagine, these three groups did not get along and no one really knew each other. But everyone was pissed off about their rents going up and lots of people had already been thrown out of their homes. And one of the people just had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes through this place, Cotty, into the center of Berlin, into Mitte. And someone said, you know, if we just block the road on Saturday and we protest, there'll probably be a fuss. The media will probably come. They'll, they'll probably let Nuria stay in her apartment. There might even be some pressure for us to, you know, um, for rents to stay down across our whole project, housing project. Let's do it. So Saturday comes and they block the road. And <laughs> Nuria was like, I'm going to kill myself. I might as well let them push me into the middle of the street. So they push her into the middle of the street. And it's a bit of a news story that day in um, Berlin. And it gets to the end of the day and the police say, okay, you've had your fun, take it down, right? But everyone in Cotty, having been interviewed, and you know, Nuria did these slightly baffled interviews with the media, was like, well, no, you haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually, we want a rent freeze for our entire housing project. When we get that, then we'll take this down. 
But of course they knew the minute they walked away, the police would just rip it down. So one of my favorite people in Cotty, a woman named Tanya Gartner. Tanya is one of the, <laughs> she's one of the punk squatters. She wears tiny little mini skirts, even in Berlin winters. Tanya is, is hardcore. Um, she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to draw up a timetable to man this barricade. We're going to man it 24 hours a day until we get what we want. So people start, and, and, and if the police come to take it down, let off, um, she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make loud noises mm-hmm. at soccer matches. She said, if the police come, let off this klaxon, we'll all come down from our apartments and we'll stop them. So people started signing up to man this barricade, people who had never met and would never have met. So Tanya, for example, in her tiny little miniskirt, was paired with Nuria, who's a very religious Muslim in a full hijab. Right? I think they got the Thursday night shift, if I remember right. And so all these different pairings of people. And Tanya and Nuria sat there and they were like, this is awful. We have nothing to talk about. We couldn't be more different. And the first few nights, they don't even really talk to each other. They just look away. But as the nights go on, they start talking. And Tanya and Nuria discovered they had something incredibly powerful in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was, she was 16 from her village in Turkey. And she had two children, two babies. And she'd been sent to earn enough money so she could make enough money to send back for her husband to come and join her. So she worked unbelievably hard. And after she'd been in Berlin for, I think it was about 18 months, she got word from home that her husband had died. Um, sitting there in the cold in Kotti with Tanya, she told her something she'd never told anyone in Germany before. She'd always told people that her husband died of a heart attack. Actually, she told Tanya he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya started to tell Nuria about how she came to Kotti. She'd come when she was even younger, when she was 15. She got thrown out by her middle-class family because she loved punk and they thought that was terrible. And she came to a squat in Kotti and quite soon she got pregnant. And Tanya and Nuria realized that they had both been children with children of their own in this place they didn't understand. They realized they were incredibly similar. They became really good friends. These pairings were happening all over Kotti. There was a, a young Turkish-German lad named Mehmet who we kept, they kept nearly throwing him out of school for having, they said he had ADHD. And uh, he got paired with this very grumpy, um, grumpy old white German guy called Dieter who said he, he didn't believe in protest because he loved Stalin, but in this case, he would make an exception. <laughs> and uh, he started helping Mehmet with, with his homework. These, these pairings were happening everywhere. Um, directly opposite this, this protest area, there's a, a gay club called Zudblock, run, run by a man I love called Rick Hutchstein, who, to give you a sense of what this, this club is like, um, the previous place he owned was called Café Anal. I <laughs> uh, thought you wouldn't want to have a sandwich from Cafe Anal. And when they'd opened this club, it opened about a year before the protests began. You know, this is an area with a lot of very religious Muslims. Some people had objected. In fact, some people had smashed the windows. When the protests began, Zublok, the club, they gave all their furniture to the protest. And after the protests had been going on for about six months, they were like, you know, you guys should have your meetings in our, in our club. We'll give you free food. We'll mm. give you free drinks. And even the kind of lefty progressive activists at Cotti were like, look, we're not going to persuade these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath posters for fisting night, right? It's not going to happen. It did happen. As one of the women, Turkish German women there said to me, we all realized 
we had to take these small steps to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for more than a year, one day a guy arrived at the protest named Tunkai. Tunkai was in his early 50s. And when you meet him, it's clear he's got some kind of cognitive problems and he's got a palate, a misshapen palate. And it was clear he'd been living homeless. Uh, but he started offering to help out. And people really liked Tunkai. He has a great energy about him. He's always hugging people. And, and by this time, they had built <laughs> the thing that blocks the street. is actually a permanent, because those of them are construction workers, a really nice permanent structure with like a roof. It's a lovely building now, right? And after a while, people said to, to Tunkai, you know, we don't want you to be homeless. You should come and live here. Come and live in, our, in this thing we've built. So Tunkai came to live there. He became a much-loved part of the Koti protest. And after he'd been there for, I think it was nine months, one day the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. Uh, so he went to hug them. Uh, and they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital for 20 years often literally in a padded cell. He, he'd escaped one day, had been living on the streets for a few months, and he found his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital at the other side of Berlin, at which point the whole of the Cotty protest turned into a free Tunkai movement. <laughs> they descend on this psychiatric mm. hospital at the other side of Berlin. And these psychiatrists are like, what the fuck is this? They've had, got this person they've had shut away for 20 years and suddenly they've got this, these women in hijabs, these very camp gay men <laughs> and these punks demanding his release, right? But I remember Uli Hartman, one of the protesters said to them, yeah, but the thing is, you don't love him. We love mm -hmm. him. He doesn't belong with you. He belongs with us. Lots of things happened at Koti. They got Tunkai back, took a while. He lives there still. Um, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the city. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of Germany. There's now a rent freeze in Berlin for everyone. But the last time I saw Nuria, the woman who'd started it, she said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my apartment. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along. And I never knew. And to me, you know, I, I think the people, you know, obviously for my books, I interviewed a huge number of experts all over the world. No one taught me more than the people at Cotty. And I think you can tell I love these people. I think they're amazing. But in one sense, they are, they are not exceptional. These are random people, right? Yeah. All that happened is they heard that cry for reconnection and they met it. They met the moment, right? That, that hunger is everywhere. Everyone, every street in this country has pe people, every collection of streets has someone like Nuria and someone like Tanya and, and someone like, like Tunkai. So I want, I want to leave everybody feeling hopeful and inspired. And that story was so inspiring. I know so many people are suffering with their mental health and addictions right now. So what, what would be your words of wisdom or what would you like to share? I would tell them about a person I got to know when I was writing Chasing the Scream. In the year 2000, um, there was a homeless guy with an addiction problem living in Vancouver named Bud Osborne. And he lived in a part of Vancouver. I know your partner's from there. He, he, he lived in a part of Vancouver that's kind of notorious. It's called the downtown east side. It's an area with a lot of addiction problems, a lot of homeless people. It's kind of stigmatized and people are frightened to go there. 
And Bud was watching his friends die one by one of overdoses. The overdose rate was sky high. And Bud was like, what can I do about this? You know, I'm just, as he would have put it, I'm a homeless junkie. What am I going to do? And then one day he was walking down the street and he heard his friend Margaret had died. Uh, She'd had an addiction problem. She'd actually hanged herself. And he's like, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And he had an idea, a very simple idea. So at that time, there was a big police crackdown in the downtown east side. So people would hide from the police when they were shooting up. So they would hide behind dumpsters or in abandoned houses or whatever. And Bud gathered together a group of people with addiction problems. And he said, you know, we know where we use. When we're not using, which is most of the time, even for quite hardcore addicts, he's like, why don't we just go, we'll drop a timetable and we'll go and look in the places where we use. And if someone's overdosing, we'll call an ambulance, right? So no police, no officials, nothing. We'll just do it, us. People were quite sceptical. They were like, they liked Bud. It's like, okay, we'll try it. So they did it. And over the next few months, the death toll on the downtown east side fell quite significantly, uh, which was obviously a great thing in itself. But it also meant that people with addiction problems were like, maybe we're not the pieces of shit everyone says we are. Maybe we can do something. They decided to set up a group called Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. They were like, what could we do next? So Bub went to the local library and he started to read about, okay, where in the world have they brought down overdose rates? And he learned that in Frankfurt, in Germany, they had opened a safe injection site. It's a very simple idea. It's a place where you can go, use your drugs, be monitored by nurses. They'll get you help if you overdose. They treat your wounds, that kind of thing. And it massively reduced the death toll in Frankfurt. So Bud was like, okay, we've got to do that here. There'd been nothing like that in North America since the 1930s. He's like, okay, we'll persuade our mayor. The mayor of Vancouver was a man named Philip Owen, who was a right-wing mayor who ran for election and won, saying that all the local drug users should be taken and detained at the local military base in Chilliwack and never let out. Uh, He was an unlikely candidate to be persuaded, to be sure. So Bud and the other members of Van Du started following Philip Owen everywhere he went in public, and they carried with them a coffin. And the coffin had written on it, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injection site? Every time Philip Owen spoke in public, the first question was always someone from Van Du who stood up and said, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injection site? One time, one of the people who asked the question was a guy called Dean Wilson. He said, do you remember Julia, who asked you a couple of months ago, who will die next? Turned out to be her because you haven't done it yet. And one day after this had gone on for more than a year, Philip Owen, entirely to his credit, said, who the fuck are these people? What is this shit? <laughs> and he decided to go and meet a load of the local drug users. He'd, he'd never met anyone like that. He was from a very privileged background. He just didn't know anyone. It blew his mind. He thought people who had addiction problems were just kind of people who partied too hard, indulged themselves, and suddenly he's meeting people who were like horrifically abused, had all sorts of terrible lives blew his mind. He went to meet Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, to explain to him how the drug war worked. And Philip Owen came back to Vancouver and he held a press conference. And he had the chief of police, the coroner, and the local drug addicts. He said, I'm never going to speak about addiction again without having these guys with me because they understand it better than me. We're going to open the first safe injection site in North America. We're going to have the most compassionate drug policies in North America. Things are going to change around here. Just you wait and see. And Philip Owen's right-wing political party was so horrified 
they deselected him as their candidate and his political career ended. But he was beaten, the right winger they selected in his place was beaten by a more left candidate and the injection site opened. And when I went to the injection site, it was more than 10 years since this had begun and the scientific evidence was in. Deaths from overdose were down by 80%, 8-0, and average life expectancy on the downtown inside had increased by 10 years. You don't get figures like that except when a war ends, which is what this was. And I remember going to see Philippo in, the mayor who, who'd, who'd launched this, and him saying to me, I would sacrifice my entire political career all over again to do this. You know, how often in your life do you get to save the lives of thousands of vulnerable people? And he said, I would never have done it if they hadn't pressured me. And I got to know Bud, the homeless guy who started this movement very well. And a couple of years later, Bud died. He was only in his early 60s, but he'd been uh, homeless during a drug war. It takes a toll on you. And when Bud died, they sealed off the streets of the downtown east side where he'd lived as a homeless person. And they had this incredible ceremony. And lots of the people there knew that they were alive because of what he'd started and because they had joined this fight. Now, when you go to the downtown east side, the biggest building on the downtown east side has a quote from Bud. It says, if you don't care, who will care? It's a quote from a poem that that Bud wrote. And when I get disheartened about this, I think, God, we're up against such powerful forces. These are dark times. I think about Bud. It's hard to imagine a more powerless person in our culture than a homeless guy with an addiction problem. Bud didn't sit there thinking, oh, fuck, this is too big. I can't handle it. He didn't wait for someone else to sort it out. He started where he stood. Because when you've got nothing else, you've got a voice. You've got a human voice to persuade the people around you. And he appealed to the people around him. And, you know, the change that that brought, there was an attempt by a right-wing government to shut down the injection site. Uh, by the government that then got beaten by the hottest man in the world, Justin Trudeau. And (laughs) that government, you know, it went all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court. And the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that people with addiction problems have a right to life, and that includes a safe place to use drugs. Mm. That will never be taken away now. Where did it begin? It begins with one person appealing to other people and many good people joining them, right? My most important message to anyone listening to this or watching this is you are far more powerful than you know. Together, we are extraordinarily powerful. It's the reason why you're allowed to have a bank account, right, as a woman. It's the reason why I'm gay and I'm not in prison. It's the reason why they got a safe injection site. It's the reason for all sorts of... It's the reason why people have pensions and the weekend and all sorts of extraordinary transformations that have happened, ways in which our lives are better than people who came before us. Um... We need to know our power and seize our power. And there are all sorts of ways we can do that. To do that, we have to come together. Now, there are challenges about COVID, of course, but COVID won't be here forever, you know, Um, and there are ways we can fight even through COVID. So I I would say the most important thing is to know your power and seize your power through collective action and through bonding together with the many people who feel like you do. And instead of pathologizing our pain by saying it's a sign of madness or weakness, we need to own our pain and listen to that pain and honor that pain because it is telling us what's going wrong. And if we listen to it, it can point us in the direction to how we start to put this right. 
I could talk to you for five hours. Oh. <laughs> I hope you'll come back one yeah, day. Yeah, of course. Uh, maybe after your next book. Well, I feel like we didn't even get into addiction because we've just been <laughs> talking about COVID and mental health and where we're at in this world right now. Um, and I would love to have you back just to do an episode on addiction because I know to, yeah. everyone would love to hear that. But we all know these things go hand in hand. And so thank you for coming on today. Johan, you have two books out right now, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. You're writing your third book, which I can't wait to hear about that. And you can buy those books everywhere books are sold, right? Well, also people who, um, if you go to www.johannharri.com, you can uh, see where to get the books or the audiobooks, but also you can listen for free to audio of loads of the people we've been talking about, Mm. Bud Osborne, the people in Cotty. I love um, that. So many amazing people. Um, you can also see where to get the audiobook and where to follow me on social media, although I'm not posting at the moment because um, it makes me feel like shit. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, I recently got, I got asked a little while ago and at the end of an interview, they were like, what's your Facebook? What's your Twitter? What's your uh, Instagram? And then and I said, and then they were like, what's your Snapchat? And I was like, I am a 41-year-old man, right? The I only, Snapchat. The only 41-year-old men on Snapchat are certainly pedophiles and should be immediately arrested. Right? That show, you know, to catch Whoa. a predator. They, oh. they should just be, they should just go up to 41-year-old men in the street and say, what's your Snapchat? Snapchat. And if and they have an know. answer, arrest them. That's it. Put them in prison, right? I love it's it. over. I don't have a Snapchat either. Um, so if you guys have been looking for me, sorry, I'm not there. It's an imposter. It's, it is. <laughs> thank you so uh, very well, thank much. Thank you for the work for you're doing. And it's, it's really inspiring. And you should be really proud of yourself. Thank you. This week's affirmation is, in this new year, I am committed to loving me. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 